Hello and welcome to episode number 124 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, May 9th, 2011. Well, it is good to be here and I know I have been absent from the podcasting universe for a little while. I think it's been about four or five weeks since I last published a podcast, and I apologize to the listeners. I get a lot of great emails uh, via Facebook, via traditional email. Uh, People get in touch with me via Twitter, and uh, that is always well appreciated. And I'm sorry that I have not been able to put podcasts out as regularly as I have been in the past. Uh, I've been quite busy. I've been doing a remodel in my house, and that has kept me quite busy Uh, I haven't had much free time to put these podcasts together, so thanks for being patient. And uh, for this episode of the podcast, actually, I will just be sharing some stories that I found on the internet that I found interesting and relevant to the themes that we discuss on the Agro Innovations podcast. And I will also be sharing some listener comments that have uh, been posted on the podcast page in particular. Uh, Many of these comments... I think uh, are very well thought out and and in many cases well written, and I think that uh, they deserve broader exposure to the community of people that listen to this podcast. So now is a good time for me to, uh, well, get back in the saddle and share some of the listener comments that uh, I think, some of the more recent listener comments that I think uh, many of the listeners to this podcast will be interested in. Now, some listeners have written to me and let me know that um, the past couple of episodes of the podcast have been difficult to hear, and that is because I also recently changed my computer configuration, and I was hoping to just be able to use uh, one computer for podcasting and for other purposes, but obviously uh, that affected the sound quality of the podcast, and uh, that was another thing that was keeping me from publishing more episodes of the podcast because I needed to get that worked out. But I am now back on my old setup, and hopefully uh, that has improved the quality of the podcast and the volume in particular. I wanted to share with the Agro Innovations podcast audience an article that I found on Alternet quite a while back now. This was published in uh, February 4th, so that's at the beginning of this year. And, of course, a lot has happened in the news, the international and global news sphere since then. But I think that this article is still really very much relevant. And this article was written by Tara Lohan of Alternet.org. And, actually, I got in touch with Tara a couple of times and tried to get her to come on the podcast. She did did express some interest, but we were never able to, to get together and actually record an interview. So I'm just going to read some excerpts from this article uh, to the listeners so that you can get a feel for some of the things that are going on around this country. And some of you may have already read this article and be exposed and have been exposed to it, but I think that it is something that is worthwhile to think about and uh, potentially to apply in some of our communities. Now, the title of this article is Vision, How Small, Mostly Conservative Towns Have Found the Trick to Defeating Corporations. The article begins, California's treasurer just announced that the state may need to begin issuing IOUs if the governor and legislature can't close the budget gap. 
and California is not the only place that's hurting. The Great Recession has hit governments, businesses, and individuals. The National Conference of State Legislature estimated that 31 states are facing a combined shortfall for fiscal year 2011 of nearly $60 billion. So what's being done? Cities and states across the nation are selling and leasing everything from airports to zoos. A fire sale that could help plug budget holes now, but worsen their financial woes over the long run, the Wall Street Journal reports. California is looking to shed state office buildings. Milwaukee has proposed selling its water supply. In Chicago and New Haven, Connecticut, it's parking meters. In Louisiana and Georgia, airports are up for grabs. And then Tara goes on to discuss uh, Naomi Klein's uh, idea of the shock doctrine, which she describes as disaster capitalism, which comes to us courtesy of Milton Friedman and his Chicago School of Disciples. For more than three decades, she's quoting uh, Naomi Klein here, Friedman and his powerful followers have been perfecting this very strategy, waiting for a major crisis, then selling off pieces of the state to private players while citizens were still reeling from the shock and then quickly making these reforms permanent. The goal is the same as it's been for decades. The elimination of the public sphere, total liberation for corporations, and skeletal social spending, writes Klein. One of the places where this strategy can be most detrimental is the corporate takeover of public water sources and infrastructure, which is elemental to our survival. Now we get into the, the real meat of this article. But there's a glimmer of good news. Across the country, small, disparate groups of people are wising up and taking action to combat corporate control by using a new strategy. And these citizens are winning. One of the first rallying calls has been against the privatization of public water infrastructure and attempts by corporate water bottlers to pilfer spring water. Communities are welcoming democracy schools run by the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund into their towns in an attempt to better understand the laws that protect corporations and the ways to defeat them. It's too early yet to call these small revolutions a movement, but something is afoot, mostly in America's rural towns. And if it continues to grow, it may very well prove transformative. The article continues. And it talks about a place called Coatesville, Pennsylvania, which decided to sell off its drinking water and wastewater infrastructure in 2001 and invest the money in a trust fund to be used for city services. But the privatization hasn't been the economic boon the city was hoping for. After tougher times hit Coatesville, the trust has drained by two-thirds, and residents have seen their water and sewer rates jump 85% since American Water, uh, which is a private company, took over. Last year, the company proposed a 229% rate hike for sewer services, which forced the city to cobble together money for legal fees to fight back. The story of Coatesville is a wake-up of sorts. Most of us don't think too much about where our water comes from, and it's usually one of our least expensive monthly bills. The vast majority of people get their drinking water from their public utility, that is, in the United States. But this figure has multinational water corporations drooling. The U.S. is a huge market that could be exploited if water could be privatized. The article continues, In a new report, Trends in Water Privatization, Food and Water Watch found from a 1991 to 2010, private companies bought or leased 144 public water systems, an average of about seven deals a year. But since the economic collapse, things are changing. 
As of October 2010, at least 39 communities were considering whether they should sell or lease their water infrastructure. And the reasons for privatization are changing. Corporations used to swoop in and try to rescue communities when they couldn't afford expensive upgrades. But now, even cities with well-functioning in the black water systems are looking to sell or lease them in hopes that privatization will bring an influx of cash to pay for other programs. Sadly, that's usually not how it pans out. Any sane financial advisor would know that selling off a recurring revenue stream for a one-time boost to the budget doesn't make sense in the long run. After looking at the 10 largest sales and concessions of public water systems, Food and Water Watch found that rates went up an average of 15% a year in the 12 years following a privatization deal. And of course, uh, the article talks about how water is a lifeblood for our community. So how can we guarantee safe and affordable drinking water for everyone? Is privatization the best and most efficient route from do for doing this? From big cities like Atlanta, Georgia, to small towns like Felton, California, communities have fought back to regain public control after water privatization deals went sour. In the small town of McLeod, California, a former logging town in the, mount, in the shadow of Mount Shasta, Nestle quietly signed a 100-year deal to bottle 200 million gal gallons of spring water a year and unlimited amounts of groundwater without any public input and without any environmental impact statement. Now, I should comment here and say that I've worked in this part of the country, and uh, many of the farms in this part of, the, uh, of, of California rely on that groundwater uh, as they install wells so that they can use that water for irrigation. Concerned community members joined together to fight back, and six years later, they succeeded in sending Nestle packing. Across the country, similar fights were also going on, as small towns worried about depletion and degradation of their water resources, and they fought back against bottling companies, but only sometimes emerged victorious. Thomas Lindsay knows of an easier way to do things. Instead of trying to beat out corporations by fighting the regulatory system, Lindsay has helped people to see a different path forward. A founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, Lindsay and his colleagues help communities to draft and adopt legally binding laws in which they asserted their right to self-govern. We think today's contemporary activism is in the wrong frame, and in addition, it is aimed at the wrong thing, Lindsay said. Most of it's federal and state activism. We think those things are pretty much dead. The only place where there's a window to operate is at the local level, and then that can be used to upend state and federal to build a new system of law which I think our communities are recognizing is needed. Essentially, Lindsay believes the last 40 years of environmental ac activism hasn't accomplished very much. And by fighting within the regulatory system, we've been barking up the wrong tree. His colleague, Gail Darrell, an organizer in New England, explains, under the reg regulatory structure, you're not allowed to say no to anything permitted by the state. Water withdrawals, sewage sludge, biomass plants, toxic waste dump, landfills, all of that is regulated and permitted by state agencies, and they issue permits to industry guided by their regulatory statutes that allow them to cause harm to the environment within certain limits. But that structure doesn't allow a municipality to say no. Your feet are cut off at the beginning. Combine this regulatory bias with corporate rights being ingrained into our Constitution, and the tables are stacked against ordinary folks. Corporations have the same rights as people, the 1st, 4th, 
Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, said Lindsay. They also have rights derived from the Commerce Clause of the Constitution that allows them to sue communities to overturn laws dealing with commerce. Before Citizens United, there were 80 to 100 years of cases ingraining corporate rights, he said. And I should also mention here that uh, one of the best sources on this is um, Paul Cienfuegos and, uh, of course, Howard Zinn. So if anyone wants to know more about these 100 years of precedent, I would look up either Howard Zinn or Paul Cienfuegos. To even the playing field a bit, CELDF has helped around 120 communities pass binding ordinance that give them the ability to say no to corporate control. Ordinances they've helped to draft have given towns the right to eliminate corporate personhood, to say no to water bottling companies drilling for water in their towns, for instance, and to assert the rights of nature. Any citizen can stand in the shoes of that river or other piece of nature and ad advocate for it. We don't have to own that piece of property, said Darrell. And if there is a gas spill that happens from a tanker crossing the bridge and it dumps into our river, we can use our rights of nature language to force that corporation to recover the damages and those are paid to the town to restore the river. Most of this work has been successful in small rural towns. The organization has its roots in Pennsylvania, working first with communities that wanted to ban corporate factory farms and then towns that didn't want sewage sludge being dumped where they lived. Later, the work branched out to help communities fighting water bottlers like Nestle, and most recently with towns concerned about natural gas drilling process of hydraulic fracturing or fracking. The towns where they've been successful, Lindsay says, are not liberal enclaves by any stretch. In fact, it's just been the opposite because it started out as a rights issue, a conservative Republican issue. The hardest places to work are the liberal progressive communities because they think we have a democracy and they are intent on working within the existing structure to try to find a remedy rather than tossing it and working on something from scratch, said Lindsay. What's been fascinating to me is when you have South and North Central Pennsylvania towns passing local ordinances that refuse to endow corporation with constitutional rights in their communities. But in the liberal progressive bastion of Berkeley, they were passing non-binding resolutions urging Congress to do something about it. I think that difference in approach has become clear to me over the last decade. Here are rural conservatives passing things saying we won't let our rights be taken away and are using a local law as a municipal collective civil disobedience tool to actually push up against the state to say fuck you. Whereas in Berkeley, people get in a huff and do some hand-wringing and pass a resolution which begs and pleads Congress to do something about corporate rights, which is never going to happen, at least in the next 20 to 30 years. While most of CALDF's work has been in small towns, this fall the city of Pittsburgh became the largest municipality they've worked with to ban corporate personhood, establish the rights of nature, and tell gas drillers interested in fracking to get out of town. This big victory comes on the heels of many smaller wins that have un gone under the radar. Darrell lives in the town of Barnstead, New Hampshire. After spending years watching a neighboring town try to prevent a bottle co bottling company from extracting water in their community, folks in Barnstead got together to find a different solution. They ended up with working with CLDF, attending the organization's democracy school, and passing an ordinance that protects them from bottling companies and corporate control and also establishes the rights of nature. Soon, other nearby towns followed suit. The idea is pretty simple, but it's also radical. We're the first folks to talk about really the need to rewrite the Constitution itself, 
to create a new constitutional structure, and most folks aren't touching that, said Lindsay. You can't talk about it in polite company. People talk about amendments. We think the thing is archaic in many ways other than the Bill of Rights. We need a new constitutional structure that recognizes community local self-governance as well as the rights of nature. We can't get there with the document we have, which was written in the 1780s. The question is, will enough people come together across the country to actually rise up and demand a new structure? Lindsay and Daryl both believe the answer is a long way down the road, perhaps 20 or 30 years. We need a complete revolt of sorts from the local level, said Lindsay, adding that communities in Pennsylvania and New England were already teaming up to try to influence change at higher levels. I think that all I think all that is positive but is too early. I don't think it's a movement at all. It's just a disparate group of people in disparate places trying to grapple with what this structure delivered to them and figure out what they need to do to fix it. As the campaign of disaster capitalism marches on, we may begin to see a groundswell of communities rising up to reclaim the rights of people against the advances of corporations. In many places, it may spring from a desire to protect what is most critical, such as water, but it is always, Lindsay says, takes real imminent harm. That is the only thing powerful enough to get people to rip off the blinders. Well, I think that story very much speaks for itself, and I would like to thank Tara Lohan for doing that research and providing us with this great information and hopefully people who are out there listening to this uh, will maybe think in some new ways about how we can challenge corporate personhood and how we can regain sovereignty for our communities in so many areas where it is desperately needed including money supply um, water rights as the article talks about in detail food sovereignty uh, the issue of raw milk has been coming up again and again, and the FDA coming in and not allowing people, farmers, to sell raw milk, not allowing consumers to purchase raw milk. So there are a lot of areas where local communities can stand up for their rights and work according to this model that is presented in this article. And of course, I will link to this article in the show notes for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. Well, moving right along here, I'd like to share with you some of the comments that people have sent me on the comment thread, which is on the Agro Innovations podcast page. Uh, some of these comments, as I mentioned, are very well thought out. I received a comment on episode number 123, which was my, inter which was my interview with Robin Francis, entitled Vocational Permaculture. And this uh, comment was sent by Albert Johnston, and he writes... I really like the comment about how permaculture is not going mainstream, but the mainstream is coming to accept permaculture as a design system and a way to build sustainable human habitats. This includes a holistic approach of integrating the food systems, housing, and the social political into one synergistic and sustainable system. And I got a lot of really good feedback on episode number 122 entitled Inadvertently Organic, which was uh, an interview with a farmer-rancher who is now pretty much retired, but uh, that was an interview with Walt Davis. And uh, people really reacted positively to, to that interview. And uh, this interview, uh, this, sorry, this comment is from A.T. And A.T. says, Frank, this is one of your exceptional interviews in which you get the ball rolling and then the speaker takes over wonderfully. I could listen to this guy for hours. Walt Davis emphasized that if it costs money, we're not doing it. 
and this closely parallels Fukuoka's do-nothing principle, as in don't get in the way or don't overdo, rather than take no actions ever. And the anecdote of the peculiar time that spiders made webs across Davis's short paddock grass is parallel to a Fukuoka anecdote of the same kind, of spiders making webs across his entire rice paddy on a particular occasion, in sync with the life cycle of a particular pest. And also I should point out that uh, Colin Sice, who was in a previous episode of the Agro Innovations podcast to talk about pasture cropping, talks about um, how massive blooms of spiders followed after he began to implement uh, pasture cropping in his fields. So uh, the spider anecdotes seem to be a, a common theme as people abandon pesticides. Well, Andy wrote in on episode number 122 and wrote, I find it difficult to understand why, despite all the evidence that working with nature, as in holistic management, is the only sustainable and profitable way to manage land, there's still so much resistance to changing from the high-input, unsustainable methods of land management that we have been conned into believing is the right way to farm or ranch. And Josh responded by saying, I'd assume that the resistance comes from large agribusiness because only they can profit from such a ridiculously unsustainable system. It takes a very particular type of evil genius to undo a natural food system in less than 50 years. My only worry is that we'll never get what we've lost back. Farmers with vast knowledge of how to grow food naturally are rare and within a generation or two will be completely eliminated from the system. In my opinion, our only hope is to resist CAFOs and genetically altered foods as these are the tools that multinational agribusiness is using in their winning battle to take over the entire food system. And then I responded to Andy's comments, I'm sorry, to Josh's comment, saying, But as Walt notes, he wasn't a large agribusiness, and he still bought into the high-tech, high-input management process. Human perception, or lack thereof, drives this resistance as much as anything. And, of course, subsidies do an enormous amount to ameliorate the questionable economics. Another good comment was on episode number 121, which was entitled State Banks, Open Source Mythology, and Viralized Transgenics, and this was uh, by Aliyah. It says, Thank you for the great podcast, as always, Frank. I must say that the more I learn about GM crops and the lengths Monsanto and similar companies are willing to take, the more fed up and simply astonished I become, especially after reading the last link you posted about a possibly new pathogen found. Simply incredible. If the spontaneous abortions in cattle are upwards of 45%, what happens when humans eat these same cattle that have been eating the GM crops? This is simply mind-boggling. Do none of the scientists that work on these crops have any vision beyond the end of their microscopes and, I guess, pockets? Well, I responded to this comment uh, by saying, I think that is about right for both the scientists and the corporatists who are driving these developments. The geneticists I've seen doing this work are engrossed in their laboratory environment. They are not the types of people who are interested in ecology and outdoor activities. They fail to comprehend the implications of their work. Here's a good comment on episode number 111, and that was the episode entitled Deconstructing Collapse, and this comment was sent in by Christopher Rubin. And Christopher writes, It's interesting how popular media can sometimes reflect our deepest hopes and fears. 
I had never before considered the popularity of zombie films as some kind of subconscious fear of the hungry mobs that may someday roam our nation post-collapse. It reminds me of the Godzilla phenomenon post-Hiroshima. I wonder what kind of media the Japanese will generate following their most recent nuclear catastrophe. This was an awesome podcast. So interesting how collapse becomes something to, to yearn for among the discouraged and marginalized. I fall victim to that slippery slope from time to time. I have listened to almost 50 of your podcasts in the past couple of weeks, and KMO ranks with Richard Manning and John Perlin as my favorite so far. Well, actually, I sent along that comment to KMO, and he uh, felt very edified and encouraged by your comments, Christopher. So thank you for sending those along. Well, as we wrap up here, uh, this final few minutes of this episode of the podcast, I did want to share with you another article from Alternet.org. And this was written by Jill Richardson, who was a previous uh, guest on uh, the Agro Innovations podcast. And uh, she writes about farm subsidies. And this is a topic that comes up from time to time on the podcast. And I haven't had an episode that really breaks down farm subsidies. It's it's quite complex, and we'll see that in this short article by Jill Richardson. But but let's get right into it. This article was published on uh, April fifteenth, two thousand and eleven, uh, and the title of the article is "Are All Farm Subsidies Giveaways to Corporate Farmers?" Nope. Here's a rundown on both good and bad subsidies. With the twenty twelve Farm Bill less than a year away. Farmers and eaters alike are already thinking about the changes they would like to see in it. Unfortunately, the subsidies that dominate much of the debate are complex and, for many, confusing. Furthermore, in the past few decades, the issues have become even more complex, as commodity subsidies are now subject to rules set by the World Trade Organization that prohibit trade-distorting subsidies and price supports. But understanding the Farm Bill is not impossible. And while many subsidies seem like baseless giveaways to corporate farmers, there are others that can actually help improve the sustainability of our food system. Here's a sample of both the good and the bad. Direct payments. Direct payments are perhaps the easiest subsidies to understand, and they are also the primary reason why farm subsidies come under such criticism during times of high commodity prices. In 2011, prices for commodities like corn and soy have reached record highs. Corn, which once sold for $2 a bushel, now goes for over $7 a bushel. It appears that farmers are making a killing, although with high fuel prices eating into their profits, many, particularly mid and small farmers, are not. The reason for the high prices is a combination of factors such as ethanol, speculation, and weather. Surely, in such a strong market, farmers do not need subsidies, and yet they still receive them. The subsidies they are receiving are direct payments. This is money given to farmers based on their historic acreage and yield, whether they need the money or not. In fact, farmers receive their direct payments whether or not they are growing anything on their land. Direct payments are purely calculated based on historic acreage and yield, re referred to as a farmer's base, with no relation to current yield, price, or need. Base is tied to a piece of land, not a farmer, so if a farmer sells 1,000 acres where he or she historically yielded an average of 160 bushels of corn per acre, the new owner of the land receives the direct payment calculated for that base. Direct payments were first passed into law in the 1996 Farm Bill. 
The WTO went into effect in 1995, and in joining the WTO as Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, Sophia Murphy puts it, the White House did a bit of an end run around Congress. The United States was now bound by the rules of the WTO, which did not allow our traditional subsidy system. But there was no congressional buy-in to end all farm subsidies. Direct payments were instituted as the solution. They gave farmers a safety net of sorts, but they were not determined by current prices or yields, and thus would not impact a farmer's planting decisions. Dan Imhoff, author of Food Fight, The Citizen's Guide to a Food and Farm Bill, notes that even though direct payments comply with WTO guidelines, the average person looking at $5 billion in taxpayer money that goes right into the hands of landowners, whether they are farming or not, whether they have an economic need or not, with commodity markets and farm assets as strong as they are, has to really wonder why there aren't stricter income caps and eligibility requirements. He adds that if direct payments are eliminated, one real fear is that those $5 billion in direct payments will just be eliminated from the overall budget rather than being redirected to something with real social benefit, like feeding school kids more vegetables and fruits and grass-fed local animals products or revitalizing local food system. The future of direct payments is still up in the air. Mike Adams, host of the radio talk show AgriTalk, has suggested the government only pay direct payments when commodity prices fall below a certain level, perhaps reflecting the sentiments of some farmers who worry that direct payments are hard to defend in years when prices are high. Representative Frank Lucas, Republican of Oklahoma, chair of the House, chair of the House Agriculture Committee, has made statements that he'd like to keep direct payments in place because they are the most WTO-compliant of our commodity subsidies. The two other type of commodity subsidies are only paid when prices fall below a certain level, making them more sensible in the eyes of American taxpayers, but less defendable to the, the World Trade Organization. Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture, on the other hand, has voiced his support for Obama's plan to cut off direct payments to the wealthiest farmers. Crop insurance. In the past several years, government-subsidized crop insurance has become a more important part of farmers' safety nets without breaking WTO rules. Both Tom Vilsack and Senator Mike Johans have made statements that they are in favor of continuing or even expanding crop insurance programs. Yet crop insurance is rarely part of the discussion among non-farmers. Ag policy expert Daryl Ray provides an explanation of crop insurance. In the past, he says, farmers weren't insured against the sorts of problems that would impact all farmers in a region at the same time, such as low price or low yield. If there was a drought, it is likely that it would affect most of the farmers in the country or even in the state or broader sections of the country. As a result, for a private insurance company to insure yield, the premiums would typically have to be higher than most farmers would be willing to pay. In recent years, insurance against low price and low yield is available, thanks to government subsidies that allow insurance companies to offer premiums that farmers can afford. Farmers are not obligated to buy crop insurance, but often bankers require it for a farmer taking out a loan, and the government will not provide disaster relief payments to farmers who do not have crop insurance. With crop insurance, farmers can't lose. If they lose, if they lose their crop or if prices fall below the cost of production, the farmers are guaranteed a payout from crop insurance. Some farmers have chosen to plant crops in inappropriate, risky places where they would not have done so in the, pla in the past. Without crop insurance, they might have lost the crop and the money. 
With crop insurance, they'll profit no matter what. Insurance companies can't lose either. As Ray explains, the government subsidies the government subsidizes the risk above an agreed-upon level. In addition, the government payments cover a portion of the cost of their operation plus a reasonable profit on the policies put in force. Crop insurance is, essentially, the privatization of farm subsidies. Now, instead of money changing hands from the taxpayers directly to farmers in need, it goes through the insurance companies who collect a profit. And with farmers now able to plant in riskier places, taxpayers are stuck subsidizing that increased risk and the crop losses that result from it. Conservation Programs The Farm Bill authorizes a number of conservation programs, but they fall into two main categories, programs that pay farmers not to plant on environmentally fragile land and programs that pay farmers to use various conservation practices on land they keep in production. An example of the former is the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. Farmers enroll their land in CRP for periods of many years at a time. Representative Lucas has suggested he'd like to cut the number of acres in CRP to allow, to allow farmers to plant on more acres. Marginal lands, which might only produce mediocre yields, might not be profitable to plant on in times of low prices. With sky-high prices, however, farmers could plant on this land and still make a profit. Farmers who might have enrolled their land in CRP when prices were lower may be eager to plant on them now. Representative Colin Peterson, Democrat from Minnesota, the highest-ranking Democrat on the House Agriculture Committee, disagrees with Lucas because he feels that the land currently enrolled in CRP probably should not be cultivated for environmental reasons. The other category of conservation program is exemplified by the Conservation Stewardship Program, CSP, which pays farmers to adopt sustainable practices on land that is in cultivation. CSP was the creation of Senator Tom Harkin, an influential member of the Senate Agricultural Committee, and he will likely be an advocate for it in the next Farm Bill debate. Analysis of CSP shows that it is popular and effective program, but it is underfunded so relatively few farmers can benefit from it. Many Farm Bill reformers see conservation programs like CSP as a way to make our food system more sustainable. I'm a real believer in no subsidization without social obligation, says Imhoff. And to me, helping landowners to protect waterways, prevent soil erosion, develop chemical-free production techniques, and enhance habitats are the highest forms of social obligation. These are things the market doesn't compensate landowners for, and we all have an interest in safekeeping natural resources. Somehow, all of our subsidies programs should become conservation-based. Moving the money currently going to farmers under traditional subsidy programs into conservation programs like CSP could help farmers retain their safety net while paying them for maximum sustainability instead of maximum yield. Furthermore, the WTO does not limit conservation payments as it does other types of subsidies. Imhoff sees a future in which conservation programs help the U.S. move toward livestock production over the next 50 years that is largely grass and pasture-based, leaving the industrial concentrated animal feeding operation a relic of the past. It will be better for the land, better for our health, better for the animals, and a responsible taxpayer investment in the food and farming system. Unfortunately, those in power in Washington have made no signals that they are moving in this direction for the 2012 Farm Bill. Well, that concludes the time I have allotted for this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Um, thank you for joining me. I will be back next week with a guest and an interview uh, very much along the lines of some of my previous interviews, uh, the interview with Walt Davis comes to mind. 
as being in line with the the interview coming up next week. So please stay tuned for that. Uh, the Agro Innovations Podcast now has a Facebook page, so uh, go check that out. I will link to that on the show notes for this episode. I will also link to the articles that I have uh, shared with you for this episode of the podcast in the show notes for this episode as well. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.